Dear Editor, this is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. He wants his code in the afternoon edition. Ray Smith, don't you have a cartoon to finish? The Zodiac Killer has come to San Francisco. Another letter. School children make nice targets. He gave himself a name. Greek, Morse code, astrological signs. This guy's used them all. I like killing people because man is the most dangerous animal of all. How does one do that? I like puzzles. I do them a lot. Got any hard suspects? About uh, 90 an hour. I'm up to around 500. You got four crime scenes. Not a single usable print. You can't think of this case in normal police terms. He's breaking the pattern. Hello, welcome to the Extra Credits Plus of David Fincher's Zodiac. I'm Trey. And I'm Kelsey. I think for most people, this is David Fincher's masterpiece. I think he has made a few. The Social Network is my favorite movie of his. And I think this is your favorite, right? Yeah, hasn't changed. I love Zodiac Yeah, just a little bit more than Social Network. Like, it's hard for me to watch. To yeah, like we, I mean, Social Network is our next episode. Yeah. So we just rewatched both Zodiac and Social Network and like, they're both so seamless. Yeah. They both have the qualities uh, of like, I could just watch this again. Like I could start mm-hmm. it up again right when I finished the movie. And I think that has a lot to do with pacing. They have like really interesting character dynamics. Um, so I'm excited to talk about Social Network because it's like, just maybe like an inch below Zodiac. And I think the reason though Zodiac is my personal favorite is because it's a newspaper story. Yeah. Like I just love newspaper, you know, movies. I, I love like broadcast films. news. Yeah. It's kind of like a combination of those. And it's, it kind of, it does have like true crime elements, but yeah, but it, it is more so like we're saying like that procedural newspaper movie and like obsession movie that David Fincher always looks at with his character. So I'm so excited to talk about it today. That's the bit that I come back to Zodiac for this interrogation of like an American paranoia. Yeah. And I feel like today is the best day ever to talk about that because should we tell listeners it's Thanksgiving? It is Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird day to podcast about Zodiac, but you said earlier that <laughs> I, I said it's like such an American movie. Yeah. Right. It really like- <laughs> is. It's an interesting, maybe we can start the tradition of watching Zodiac on Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, let us also, I'm curious what people watch on Thanksgiving. Maybe, I mean, maybe people don't watch movies with, yeah. If like you celebrate, or- I guess it, I, I feel like people do the classics, but I, I just saw a poll recently. I don't know if it was IMDb or who it was on Twitter, but they said the number one watched Thanksgiving movie last year was knives out. Oh, wow. Which is interesting. Yeah. That, I mean, that makes sense. It's like a yeah, comedy mystery. thriller. Yeah. Kind of like Zodiac, just right? a little lighter. Yeah, yeah I guess we're, <laughs> we like the darker stuff. So yeah, Zodiac could be a new tradition. Uh, should we talk about our Thanksgiving experience yesterday? We had a beautiful night out with friends. Yes, we, we had a, a had nice some... Friendsgiving. We had uh, Trey made some fake, uh, I guess. What do we call it? Protein. Plant protein. Or just like yeah. real protein. <laughs> <laughs> it was like beyond yeah. meat protein. I never would know what to call it. I just yeah. call it fake protein to like my friends. But it is like real protein. It's just like fake meat. You're yeah. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah it, uh, it tasted so, it honestly tasted like beef and broccoli. I, I thought it was great. Um, yeah. But I was so curious what people feel like eat meat all the time, what they thought about it. Yeah. 
They're like, it's fine. Yeah, it's all right. That's what people say. (laughs) I think it's excellent. Like when I have it, I go, this is a perfect substitute. Like I miss miss eating certain things on Thanksgiving. Um, But I was going to, I'm just bringing this up because I'm like still kind of in a food coma. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) From last night. Like we had so much uh, soup potatoes and mac and cheese. I'm like thinking about the leftovers that we're about to eat. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So David Fincher and Zodiac. Uh, So for listeners who want a more complete picture of what we think about Fincher, go back and listen to our Fincher Project episode about his career. And then also we have a conversation about the killer. And we talk about how we think him and his collaborators are the modern experts on American psychological thrillers. And I think Fincher specifically is someone we come back to quite often because his movies are so rewatchable, like you're saying, because they're so addictive, but also like we can be obsessive people and there's something dissective about him as a (laughs) filmmaker and the themes that he likes to come back to. And he likes to interrogate obsessives like himself. And I think that's a lot of fun, to be honest, even in like Zodiac, which is a haunting movie because Mm -hmm. it's based on real life tragedies. It is kind of like this prime example of Fincher tackling these obsessive themes And also, he's an interesting filmmaker because he is a zeitgeist filmmaker. He's a little bit of a a provocateur, Mm -hmm. and sometimes he's well-intended, and sometimes he can be a little bit contrarian, and that balance isn't always perfect, and we talked about that a lot on that Fincher episode, and we'll definitely talk about that today on Zodiac, but I think he is like just provoked at such a high level for so long now, almost like 30 years, and it's kind of like unparalleled what he's doing at like a mainstream level. There's really no one else like him making movies with these kind of big ideas while still selling the movies as like popcorn films. Yeah. It's really interesting. Like I, I wouldn't call them B movies or anything, but I think that, uh, mm-hmm. people who engage with like movies, um, maybe like at that, like popcorn level, which is like, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Like people who sure. like to like relax and watch a movie that would entertain them yeah. instead of really like long pauses, exploration, something like vortex, you know, like a really intense movie that's going to just really bum you out. So I think that like he has that quality and it has a lot to do with the pacing and it has a lot to do with like what you're talking about, like watching someone just get so uh, consumed by like an idea, like a gray Smith in this movie. Right. But it is just interesting to think about how the kind of common moviegoer who is looking for that escapist entertaining experience probably still knows a David Fincher movie when they're watching one. Like he's really monetized his vibe. Like, you know, his style really well. And mm-hmm. it's like very clear. And I, we were trying to pinpoint like locate what exactly is the, the aspects of a David Fincher movie that are so, Uh, memorable for so many people. And I think it's because you might have said this on that episode that he's a little quirky in his ideas. Like Mm -hmm. his comedy is a little dry, a little absurd. Yeah, really dry humor. Like I was surprised when we were in the killer theater, how many people were laughing at the same things that were very David Fincher pointed. Like you'd have to know his filmography really to be in on the joke. And yeah, I think dry humor is definitely a part of that. But it's like also a haunting humor. Like some of his yeah. jokes are, are really dark yeah. and they become very memorable for that reason. And then also you have like that moody atmosphere and the composition. Like it's all mm-hmm. so micromanaged at like this autocratic level. It's kind of hard not to appreciate, even if it seems like it would be hell to work on one of these movies. And then the stories he chooses because he he doesn't often write his stories. In fact, I don't think he's ever co-written one of his scripts. He just chooses the stories based on this very unique mission of making a film that is more mathematical than emotional. So it's very weird that (laughs) normal moviegoers also come to his films for these specific screenplays. 
Yeah. We talked about this on the killer too, but I tend to think of him. And I think a lot of people do like as an auteur. Mm -hmm. And even though he's not writing and directing his movies, I feel like when he is directing, he has such attention to detail that it, it almost like feels like he like is editing the script or like writing it, you know, yeah. like in, in real time, like with like in conversation with the writers, right. Uh-huh. Um, like Zodiac, right. There were a lot of edits that went back to make it feel like it was more of a Fincher project and like more of something that he really wanted to focus on. Yeah. And then the other part of that is also the idea that he like picks these scripts that are constantly looking at like the themes that he's interested in. So he has like a project in a similar way that I think we talk about auteurs having. Yes. I I think what we're talking about is that he has a very specific mission, which is to make behavior cinematic. And he doesn't necessarily (laughs) need to like write his own scripts. He just needs to pick stories that have to do with a specific character study that allows him to unpack a psychology about why someone is participating in a very outlier way, like Mm. outside of the norm. And that is something that he is just fascinated by in all of his films is trying to pick movies or scripts with ideas to build movies that have to do with hypermasculinity, that have to do with anti-consumerism, narcissism, domestic terrorism. Like he deals in such lofty ideas, but usually through a few characters that he really just wants to like spend six months, a year, three, four years on. He's like investigating their their psyche. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why people know they're watching a David Fincher movie because there's something unsentimental about it. There's something egotistical but addictive about it there's something robotic and cold but also funny and rewatchable these like (laughs) conflicting feelings you have as a viewer when watching his film because he's doing something that feels a little clinical and wrong because he is like going into uh, the character's brains and making you feel like you're (laughs) you're going through this like like a psychosis with them um so yeah i feel like the the fincher project of clinical filmmaking is really at an all-time high here in zodiac i can recognize that this is like his master stroke while still having like my favorite with the social network, which again, we'll get more into in our next episode. But, uh, 2007, that's when this film came out. You want to go back to 2007 for a second? I was wondering why when watching this last night, again, why is 2007 like in my brain recently? And it's because Saltburn just came out and we're prepping for that that episode. Was that set in 2007? It was set in 2000, the class of 2006. And I guess in, I think it's taking place in England. And I think, when they say class of 2006, they are in 2007. I don't know, but <laughs> yeah, the but movie they were, takes place in the summer of 07. Yes. And the characters were watching some like very uh, timely yes. movies right. inside the movie um, that right. were around that era. Yeah. That's spoil gonna be a, it. Yeah. It's yeah. Gonna be a lot of fun to talk about. Uh, so in 2007, Fincher's most recent film before the release of Zodiac in 07 was actually five years before it was in panic room in 2002, mm-hmm. which is a huge gap in his career. He took some time off to do some music video and commercial work. And then uh, around this time when he was shooting those things, he was getting calls to maybe direct some big franchises like Spider-Man possibly, which maybe we can have that conversation today about what kind of Spider-Man movie (laughs) he wanted to make. Or maybe we should wait till the Andrew Garfield conversation since that's actually (laughs) Spider-Man. So maybe we'll wait an episode for that. But uh, during this time around like 2004, the very real life Robert Graysmith um, his novel Zodiac about the, this investigation uh, was sold to be adapted into a film and the script sat on the shelf for, for quite a while, needed some work and screenwriter James Vanderbilt worked with uh, Robert Graysmith and they both loved Seven. 
and they really wanted David Fincher to take on this project. And Fincher kind of hopping on and off director list for different studio projects was like, okay, I'm game. Not only because this is a movie where I get to kind of subvert the serial killer genre because Mm -hmm. he already made his career off of seven. He also felt some guilt maybe for uh, platforming uh, evil genius serial killers in this like allegorical film like seven. And so Zodiac was kind of like the anti seven for him in a lot of ways. But also something I learned in prep for this movie was that David Fincher as a kid was obsessed with the Zodiac killer and the investigation into the killer, which is not too surprising that like little Fincher was like (laughs) staying up at night, like searching for information about a serial killer. Uh, But yeah. So when he heard about this film, he was like, I'm game. Let's do research and let's actually prep for this movie. Like we are back in the late sixties, early seventies with like Tashi and like doing this investigative work. And so they actually hired uh, real life, um, uh, consultants or sorry, real life survivors from these tragedies to be consultants on the film. They got real life Tashi to get involved, who is, is the detective, the detective who yeah. Mark Ruffalo plays. And it seems like it was a very collaborative pre-production, which seems really cool. And the funding was uh, apparently a very hard sell, even though they had all this information to go off of. And this like very in-depth, in-depth script. Uh, but the studios were like, David, this isn't seven. (laughs) This is like what you said at the top. This is a journalism movie. This is a newspaper film. Uh, This is not like that entertaining uh, A serial killer movie with a B idea. And he was like, yeah, I know. That's the point. Yeah, it's not a thriller in the same way. Right, exactly. And so the movie uh, cost a bit of money. It cost almost $100 million, around 85 mil apparently. And it lost some money. And it wasn't nominated for any Oscars which is criminal, but 2007 was a crazy year. We were like 12 or something like that when 2007 hit. And so I was watching this movie quite often, but I wasn't seeing all the masterpieces from this year. Like I didn't see No Country for Old Men right away. I didn't see There Will Be Blood right away or Michael Clayton, but there were some iconic movies that came out this year. Yeah, you just named a lot of huge hitters. Like, But yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because you like grew up seeing a lot more movies than me. Like you saw seven at a very young age. Yes. (laughs) Scarred me in good and bad ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I think like, I really didn't see Zodiac to like later in my life, but I saw Mm -hmm. all of those like, uh, Oscar kind of like buzz movies because I like only had access to movies through like TNT reruns. Yeah. I just think it's fascinating that Zodiac, there will be blood, no country for old men, Michael Clayton, yeah. These four films coming out right before the financial crisis, right before Obama, like these four movies are about an American psychosis, like just like this psychology of our culture falling apart to like something is going on <laughs> to the American identity. And all of these movies are tackling that stress and anxiety point. I, find, I just find that interesting. Um, yeah. We just haven't had anything like that since. Uh, so let's talk about Zodiac. Yeah. This episode will be like our last Extra Credits Plus episode, which is a commentary style, meaning that we're going to watch this movie live with anyone who'd like to watch with us. We did this recently on Ari Aster's Midsummer, and we'll give you a countdown when we start the movie. Yeah, so you can fire it up, you know, mm-hmm. um, you can rent it. We have the DVD, yeah. uh, which we should say we are watching the director's cut. Yeah, it's like an extra four or five minutes longer. Yeah, Listeners, so you don't need to watch that. It won't be too off. To. Right. Yeah, if you're watching along. But right. for people who are not watching along, you can just listen to this like a podcast. 
where we do kind of our normal deep dive. We'll be talking about like our favorite scenes and mm-hmm. characters and, and some of the dialogue along the way. Right. Also, if listeners, if you're on our main feed, you're going to have access to the first 30 minutes of this episode. And if you'd like to listen to the full, what I assume will be three plus hours <laughs> of today's episode, you can go to our Patreon link in our description. And for only $5, you'll have access to this episode and also our growing catalog over there on Living Plus. Yes. I, just, I love saying I, it, it never gets old saying <laughs> living plus and I love that Brian Cox is in this movie yeah yeah oh yeah we're gonna have to have some Logan Roy conversations yeah. <laughs> okay so on play we'll go ahead and hit play we have zero seconds on the screen right now let me get my controller okay so three two one play all right let's do this we have the 70s logo from Paramount here. Pretty yeah, cool. like purposeful green. Also for people who have never seen the cover of the DVD, I just think it's so cool. It's like the actual, uh, well, I, not the actual, but like it's the, <laughs> the actual Zodiac letter. <laughs> yeah. It's like the postage um, of uh, yeah. the Zodiac letter. Yeah. <laughs> this film is based on true case files. Something that is both disturbing about this movie being a cold case that is still being worked on to this day, while also being fascinating because you have actual survivors from this time period working on the movie, thanks to Fincher getting those people on the team. It makes this film like an interesting American cultural artifact in the sense of like just the pre-production stages and how much work went into this. Yeah, I think with like, instead of saying, you know, based on an actual story or a true story. I feel like Mm -hmm. the, he wanted to have based on case files because he probably felt like that was more so saying like based on a true story, you know? Um, because a lot of this movie feels so specific because they were really taking from police reports and he on like commentaries and interviews has talked about how they're so detailed. Like we're about to go to lover's lane. Right. And he like literally stood there, like mapped out the angles, like how close people were like where, you know, like he, where the shooter would have been. Yeah. Yeah. Like followed everything. Um, very specifically. We just saw probably the longest dolly shot. I think I've ever seen in a movie, which apparently was like a 500 foot long time dolly setup. Um, to kind of get this calm before the storm, if you will. Yeah, this, this like kind of, suburbia. Yeah, this 4th of July before the the major Zodiac murder. I guess this is actually the second Zodiac murder. Fincher only shows the murders in this film where there were actual uh, survivor uh, accounts where he could mm-hmm. feel comfortable not exploiting the murders because he has the kind okay. of like permission of those survivors to talk about those uh, those events. But apparently the Zodiac Killer did have like a first murder of a couple a few weeks before this July 4th uh, Lover's Lane night. By the way, Minkus. Minkus. <laughs> yeah. For Boy Meets World people. I forget his name. I'll have to look at the actor's yeah. name. But uh, the guy who plays Minkus from Boy Meets World somehow stars in one of the most memorable cold opens of a movie of the 21st century, which is pretty wild. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, no shots at minkus like real world actor but i think he also really did look like the real world person um yeah so that's why fincher casted him and as she looks like darlene too uh when they show the photos i love this cold open though because Mm -hmm. this is something that i didn't realize until maybe like the fifth time watching the movie where like we you know are now seeing okay darlene like went to the drive-in the Mm -hmm. mr ed's and saw the car 
and she's trying to like say, you know, this is nothing to him, to Minkus. <laughs> I forgot his name in the movie. Um, uh, his name is Mike. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, By the way, the Minkus actor is Lee Norris. <laughs> okay, just so we apologies, shout him out. So anyway, but you can see her saying like, it's nothing like it's, it's okay. Let's go to this other spot Mm -hmm. because she's trying to also convince herself, right? That it's nothing. We know that she's been getting calls at her house later on, like great Smith realizes from the Vallejo files. Mm -hmm. And so I always like love this opening because it's something that I just didn't realize until maybe like the, you know, the fifth or, or more time that I've watched the movie. Yeah. This movie as a kid, at 12 years old was weirdly more terrifying than seven. I guess not weirdly. It just was more terrifying because of the idea that the Zodiac killer hadn't been caught. And Mm -hmm. so like learning that in my preteen years, I remember I'll talk about it later this episode, but it definitely like stunted me for a month where I like didn't focus on anything else in the world except the Zodiac killer. Just Just I was full grace. I basically I'll (laughs) I'll get to it. Um, Speaking of 12 year olds, uh, apparently quick Fincher anecdote but one of the reasons he signed on to make this movie is because his dad came home in the early 70s from work or he came home from school and was his, he 12 i think he was like 12 or 13 years okay. old yeah and david fincher uh came home from school i'm telling this story terribly but his dad <laughs> his dad was a writer for life magazine and he works from home and david fincher rode the bus every day to school and on the way uh home back from school there was like a bunch of cop cars following his bus and he came home like dad there's cop cars following our buses for the past few days what's going on and his dad was like oh yeah there's this serial killer who's killed like four or five people who calls himself zodiac and he's threatened like to kill a bunch of kids and fincher was like why the hell are you now <laughs> telling me this why am i not being driven to school why am i riding the bus yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh that's yeah that, i mean that makes sense of why he like you know took on this movie and because I think we talked about earlier, right? The writers were surprised that he took it on because he had already done seven. Like he'd mm-hmm. already done the serial killer thing in your filmography. But kind of to your point, like this movie feels very different, um, but also scarier than seven for me too, because it is so realistic. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, as we're about to leave 1969 in a second and then cut to Jake Gyllenhaal and we'll eventually have to have the Hall conversation. Uh, I just wanted to note how interesting thematically it is, even though it is just real life, but also just like the, the obviously the ideas that Fincher is imbuing in the real life setting and this tragedy on July 4th in 1969, you have like the end of Vietnam, you have end of assassinations of like major figures like MLK and Malcolm X and Kennedy. And like, then you have like terrorist killings or like Charles Manson killings a month later. And you have like just this like violent nationalism that is occurring throughout the seventies and eighties after this. And so it's just a fascinating, the way Fincher sees this time in 1969 is like this, this cap to this utopian dream, this like disillusion of this American dream. That's like now fading for, I guess him personally. And this is what he wanted to capture in this film. Hmm. And I guess the, this whole movie being about how there isn't, isn't any kind of resolution at the end. Also yeah. kind of what Fincher is commenting on, which is like, we're still living in this paranoid state since the 1970s of the Zodiac killings. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's just kind of like all a slow downhill roll in yeah. this movie. Yeah, um, we didn't ju- we didn't talk about it, but we heard the Zodiac like phone call. Also something that was like really, mm-hmm. you know, a terrifying like, goodbye. 
you know, and like him reporting his own murders. Right. Um, and then we have this like really like interesting tone shift to Gray Smith with his kid. Mm-hmm. And I think the favorite line of yours is like, he drops him off at school. He's like, learn a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, there's going to be a test later. I like the idea that Gray Smith is testing his kid. There's a lot of, you see the background here for people who are watching. We're looking at like a matte painting. There's a lot of oh, yeah, VFX, the CGI, but also just like beautiful matte paintings that um, Fincher had a team of like tens of painters and artists working on. Um, that was blue screen, but also some like actual painting work, which is pretty cool uh, because I guess he couldn't shoot in San Francisco. They wouldn't allow him. And so the, one of the reasons the studio had such a big budget was because they had to recreate so many different things in this film that looked like San Fran and the Chronicle. Yeah. This is one of my favorite shots when we're, he like goes into work and we have all the mail mm-hmm. going through the the newsroom. I just like, like the idea of seeing like kind of the mundane things that he right. kind of like makes exciting with his like film work. But also as we go along with pacing, like a lot of this really is like, we've already called it a procedural, but mm-hmm. really like paperwork and meetings and just like getting this checked out for a third time and a fifth time and like eating a donut for like the same routine that you have like every single day, but he makes it like really cinematic. uh, Yeah. Like thrilling isn't the right word, but it's like captivating. Yeah. Well, he said that he thought the letters were the biggest hook of the movie because they're so creepy. And so he thought that following, the letters from Zodiac or these letter, the letters, letters from Zodiac, but also just like this bundle of letters where one of them could be like a blood stained, you know, serial oh, okay. killer. So like this basket of letters that you're following is like this omniscient character throughout, throughout the San Francisco Chronicle is just terrifying as a concept. And it is the biggest hook of the movie. Like this notion of someone, uh, being able to terrorize your life through a letter mm-hmm. is really interesting to Fincher. Oh, was it at the top there? Yeah, it is. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I also love when he walks into work because this is a, you don't see it at first, but it is a Graysmith kind of story at the end. Mm-hmm. But there are small like hints to his character, like along the way um, where he is walking in and he sees all the reporters like talking and mm-hmm. having a, like what he thinks is a good time. You know, he like wants to be a part of that team. The boardroom. Yeah. yeah. And we're, we kind of like slowly follow him he's observing things. I guess he is kind of like an audience, uh, you know, character in that way. Right. Yeah. He kind of is a surrogate in in a sense until the very end where he becomes like the actual main character. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting about Robert Graysmith, uh, is that he was a cartoonist turned like citizen detective basically. And he wrote the Zodiac novel with all of like the Zodiac letters in it, with all the evidence that he found through decades of like research, like spending his dedicating his whole life and like his marriage that, that fell apart that we see in this film mm-hmm. because of this obsession over like searching for this killer for like really good intentions, but also because he's just like a very persistent person that, you know, he has said this on interviews in interviews where he's like, I can't get it out of my head. If I like, if I can't fully complete this, this task of trying to figure out who the Zodiac killer is, I feel like I'm letting so many people down, which that's like really obviously well intended, but he wrote the book, the Zodiac investigation book. So other people could try to figure out who the Zodiac killer was. Like give people evidence? Yeah. Well, so they could take that evidence and hopefully build on it, which I think is really interesting as a concept. Um, But in terms of Robert Graysmith, the the cartoonist, 
Fincher said like a lot of his heroes as a kid were cartoonists because he was around a lot of them when he was younger because his dad worked for Life Magazine. And so Fincher would be around a lot of journalists often and he would listen to them talk for hours. And what Fincher said is drink too much and say the wrong things around a kid. (laughs) And he was fascinated by them, but he was really interested in the guys in the corner who were drawing what the journalists were talking about. So like cartoonists, like having to carefully listen to journalists talk about a contemporary issue and Mm -hmm. then produce the day of like a cartoon to represent some kind of current event. And then that person had to like churn out something every day that was like major quality. And Fincher said, and if he you like think, sees himself in that exactly, person, right? Somebody who has to like paint images. Yeah. Well, I mean, he talks about, about like his project of making movies and he says that it's like making strangers feel something at the same time. Like mm-hmm. he does go about movie making in a very calculated way. Yeah. Um, but it works. I mean, you know, he's like very detail oriented, right? But I, I mean, he just introduces like so many great things like that. I mean, who, who doesn't love a newsroom? Um, who doesn't yeah. love an observant person who you're like, who is this person? Like they're drawing like the cipher. They're trying to figure it out immediately. <laughs> we get, we're getting clues. Um, who and I, I cover Vallejo. I love, sorry. And I had should to we talk about the intro to RDJ. Yeah. Robert Downey Jr. For a sec or yeah, sure. We can talk about Downey. I think eventually I'd like to on this podcast, have like a deeper conversation about all three of these actors. Like if this is their peak, like, is this their best movie? I think that's okay. a, a fascinating hmm. conversation about Mark Ruffalo, RDJ and Gyllenhaal, but Downey. Yeah. I, he looks nothing like the real life Avery and Fincher picked him specifically or asked him to be in this movie as Avery because he looked at Avery, Paul Avery as a kind of enigma. And he felt that RDJ represented that kind of robust, quick intellect potential, like on the edge of abusing drugs because he's obsessed to character. And obviously with like RDJ's past, especially before this film, Hi. Hello there. Sorry for interrupting. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening so far. And hopefully you are enjoying yeah. <laughs> the episode so far. I feel like maybe if you made it this far. They got it this far. They're yeah. having a good time. I mean, let's hope. But to access our full conversation, you can go to the description of this episode to join our Patreon community the extra credits plus yes and for only five dollars a month you can get access to our full catalog of patreon exclusive episodes hope to see you there 